So we're going to talk about Seymour Raiden, my therapist of nearly 30 years from the age of 15 to about, I don't know, what was I, 42, 43, something like that. Uh, Many of you have heard me reference him numerous times in my episodes past, and if you are fans of him, this will be the episode for you. If not, it's still pretty entertaining. I interview my friend Molly, who also worked with Seymour for quite some time, and we just trade stories. I'll just let the episode speak for itself. There are some recordings, some voicemails from Seymour that come at the end of the episode. Some of them, the sound quality isn't great, but you know, what can you do? Some of them are pretty profound. Some of them are really sad. A lot of them are pretty cryptic. He makes references to something called the Pirelli system, which is a system of training horses. He also makes reference to a book that about a near-death experience in South America, and I can't find the title. Sorry about that. Also, in the notes, I will leave references to books that he liked. He had thousands of books in his library, but I have like <laughs> 12 maybe that I recall. So check them out. All right. Thank you so much for listening. So I'm here with my friend Molly, uh, and no double entendres are allowed the entire time. <laughs> she was saying earlier that you have a voice like what animal? A chipmunk. <laughs> <laughs> you totally do. So you and I have, we've known each other for how long? You know, Benny, I want to say like 12 years. 12 years? Can that be right? We met under circumstances that we will not discuss. Is that correct? We're so sketchy. Yeah, we're going to be sketchy. We're not going to talk about how we met. Just in case anyone's wondering, no, she was never my patient. (laughs) (laughs) And what do you do for work? I'm a nurse practitioner. Can you tell people how badass nurse practitioners are for real, real quick? I don't know that I can do us justice, Benny. Well, then do an injustice. Okay. We do it all. A little bit of a nurse, a little bit of a doctor, Mm -hmm. 100% love. 100% love. Clinical accuracy. Because you would tell me stories about like you would do full on surgeries in the ER, like removing people's heads and stuff. (laughs) I've never taken someone's head off. But you could if you needed to. Potentially. Would they live? Potentially not. Yeah. You used to work at the Boston. I worked in Boston at a very large and famous hospital for a very long time. And you did a lot of really gnarly shit. I worked in trauma surgery there. Why did we want to do a podcast today? Why not? Well, you drove all the way from fucking far away. (laughs) I also haven't seen you in a hundred years. It's been about a hundred years. Do you think... You know how they have cat ears and dog ears? Mm-hmm. Well, I think they have Jew ears. Oh, I think tell. Well, I think Jews live a long time. Mm-hmm. And I think that 100 years in Jew years is not as many. 100 years in Jew years it's like is 80, not as it's many. It's like 80 years or 75 years. Okay. Because I think we just live longer. Why do you think that is? Because we're in superior. <laughs> um, no. Wow, um, that escalated quickly. ACLU uh, and other organizations. I think it has to do with maybe the nose and the ears. I think I've made this joke before that Jews look more Jewish as they age. I think you have said that before. Yeah. You know what it is, is that Jews lean gracefully into aging. They don't fight it. They're like, yeah, I'm old. I got nose hairs sticking out. I can braid the things coming out of my ears at this point. And that's fine. You know, the if, when you're in the Tao, Lao Tzu, mm. the Tao, and it's all about being in balance with the universe, right? Yeah. And basically the idea is that if you're outside of the balance, you suffer and you die. And Jews, I think they're very good at like being in the balance. So you're saying that my Botox is making me unbalanced? Well, you're not a Jew. So it's probably okay. (laughs) If Jews do Botox, it's bad news. 
because okay. it really goes against their nature. I'm going to take that under advice. But because you're a white blonde woman from the East Coast, it's okay. <sighs> I'd say it's necessary. What are your recent Botox treatments? Forehead. <laughs> <laughs> Crow's feet, which hopefully I don't have anymore. Okay. Got a little filler here. On the lip. So for the record, uh, Molly's forehead is as smooth as a marble tabletop. <laughs> say it again. And her lips are as full as um, a newborn babe's. And her eyes, there's nothing crowy about them at all. <laughs> um, so we can just wrap for a bit if you want. Sure. Anything can be edited out. So you really can say anything. And I, That's good. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Basically, Molly is my really good friend and what has been an ally of mine for a very long time. And because I want to, uh, she's on my podcast. And also we shared a therapist. Who, what therapist is that? The dude. The dude. And what was the dude's actual legal name? Seymour Raiden. That motherfucker. AKA the goat. The goat. Yes. So I talk about Seymour a lot and I thought it would be good if I brought somebody in to verify that I was not completely full of shit, that he was actually kind of as amazing and, 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 and sort of terrible. I mean, he was pretty awful in a lot of ways. He was. He was pretty bad. In the best possible way. I remember once I, remember once I was complaining. I was, I, I was a year, it was a long time ago, and I was complaining about my relationship. And I'm like, I just think that my girlfriend's not going to be attracted to me because I'm overweight. He said, she's been looking at that fat belly for the last two years. What makes you think she's <laughs> going to change her mind now? <laughs> That's who he was. Yeah. That is who he was. How tall was he? Like six foot five? Six foot eight? No, he wasn't six foot eight. Felt like it to me. Yeah. I'm very petite. Yeah, you're a little little toad. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he had like Gandalf vibes though. Yeah, he did. But like if Gandalf and Carl Jung had a baby and that baby was very tall and then that baby lived 150 years. And was really cantankerous. Yeah, he was a little cranky. And irascible. And inappropriate. Totally inappropriate. The best. Would he like hug you and kiss you and stuff? There were lots of hugs. I never felt creepy. Okay. It was no. always when I needed a hug, which was fine. Right. He did say some off color things. Like one time I was leaving. And <laughs> I don't know. I was upset about not having children. And like uh -huh. I was trying to have children actively at that point. And he said goodbye. And he said, I love you. And he said, I love you too. And then apropos of nothing, he said, you know, I can't wait to see you with a baby on your tit. <laughs> Sucking on your tit. Oh, Jesus. Oh, God. I almost fell off the porch. Yeah, I loved him. He's very old school. It's like He had a way of doing really, really inappropriate things that didn't seem to upset people. Oh, not at all. I loved it. Yeah. I lived for it. Oh, I know how he told me about how he would. He knew how to take off a woman's bra just by brushing his hand across her back. I believe that. Now, in normal society, you could go to jail for that. It's assault. <laughs> and that's really fucked up behavior. It's fucked up behavior. <laughs> Like, I was like, Seymour, you can't do that. And he's like, what do you mean? And I laughed. And I'm like, Seymour, no. Like, do not, do not do that. You know, like we were in this fucking restaurant once. This is when he was getting really old and kind of out of it. And our waitress was, was really hot. And he kind of goes, he goes, you're beautiful. And like touches her hand. I'm like, oh my God, Seymour, what, what the fuck are you doing? He's like, I just said she was beautiful. And I'm like, you can't, you cannot touch people like that. And sure enough, they changed waitresses on us. And he looked at me like, you're right. She's like, yeah, I'm right. <laughs> what do you think was going to happen, you old fart? But he was literally 100 at that point, right? Or close 96, to. 96, I think. Yeah. He was losing it. He was funny, though. I mean, he he we were I was driving him out someplace. And he would do this thing where he would say, quick, count the cows. Because he was out in Petaluma. And there's lots of cows there. 
And so I decided that I would be slick. And I said, hey, Seymour, quick, how many cows? And he said, count the legs and divide by four. (laughs) (laughs) I loved him so much. Anyway. The yeah. Best. Yeah, he's the best and the worst. Yeah, I thought you were really full of shit when you told me about him. What did I say? I don't know. You just painted him to be almost like a wizard. And I thought, oh God, here's someone who has put their therapist on this pedestal and I'm probably gonna meet this man and think that he's an absolute twit. Mm-hmm. Like total beanbag, you know? And then I met him and I was like, Holy shit, he's real. <laughs> <laughs> what was my advertising like? Persistent. Yeah, I said you gotta go. Yeah. You consistently said that. Um, You said that he was brilliant. You said you'd known him a really long time. You said he was unlike anyone I had ever met. All of this turned out to be true. Yeah. You said he would surprise me. He sure did. And you said he was really fucking old. Yeah. That was also accurate. And that was when he was still like in his 80s. Yeah. And he lived, you saw him out on his ranch in Petaluma, right? I did. Will you describe it for us? It was the single most magical place I've ever been in my life. And I have been all over the world. But to me, in that moment, it just seemed like something I had conjured up out of my subconscious. So farmhouse, not a modern farmhouse, a real farmhouse. Kind of wraparound porch, if I remember right, or at least like a... Not a wraparound, it was just in the front. It was beautiful. Rolling hills, like fields. He had a barn out back. He had horses. He raised Arabian horses. He did. And they were beautiful and they were yeah. very well bred. He, he had a, towards the end of his life, he said, yeah, well, one of my horses had a colt. And I'm like, what are you going to do with it? And he said, pet it. <laughs> <laughs> and then his house inside it was really nice. Well decorated. Remember his office had books everywhere. Yeah. Did you remember, were you there when you put the windows in? That was the thing I remember most about it. Yeah. So it was big giant windows and they looked out back over those gorgeous fields. Yeah. You, you'd walk in and you basically, you'd see miles and miles of green yeah. from his office. Looks like windows, heaven. Did he tell you about his, his wife? Yes. Well, so she died in a car accident, something like 10 years prior. So one day he was chilling in his office and there was a knock on his front door and him and his wife they'd always do this they had this little game where they'd say come in please and um he kind of figured it was her and he's like come in please and in she walks she walks into his office looks she's not seen the windows before because well she's been dead for a while she looks around and she goes wow and she vanishes i believe it but he said i wasn't ben i was not asleep (laughs) 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 i know i don't know i mean man was nuts he was nuts i think he was just connected to the universe in a way that most people aren't yeah how would you say can you talk about that i don't know there was one night it must have been two or three o'clock in the morning in boston and my phone was ringing and i was not in a good headspace at all and one of my rules was whenever the dude calls you answer the phone yeah and i had him in my phone as the dude so I'm like, oh, the dude calleth, better pick up. So I answered the phone and he had this kind of really like gruffly, muffly old man voice. And he was like, Molly. And I said, hi, how are you okay, Seymour? And he said, yeah, I was thinking about you because I was made to think about you. <laughs> I was like, I don't know how to take that. He said, I was laying in my bed, my dear, and a, a house fly came and it landed on me. It landed on my nose and it stayed for a while. And I thought to myself, what is this? What are you doing? What are you here to tell me? And it told me that I needed to call you. And so I know that it's late there, but I'm calling you and I love you. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What a sweetheart. Yeah. He would talk about, he would walk outside and there'd be a poppy and the the light would hit the poppy and the light from the poppy would bounce off of it into his heart. 
he said. Really? Yeah. He was a wizard. He was. So let's talk about some brilliancies from him, because right now he just sounds Willy Wonka bonkers. Does he? A little bit. I think one of the most poignant moments that I had with him that affected my life was not really in the context of him being my therapist. So he had gotten really on in years. I think at this point he must have been 96 and wasn't doing well. He had had like a series of small strokes and Mm -hmm. was just not really thriving. And so he called me one day while I was working. And of course, I answered the phone. Yeah. And he said, oh, I just wanted to talk to you. I've seen my doctor and I'm sort of at an impasse and I don't know what to do. And I said, well, what's wrong? Like, what are your symptoms? And he said, I can't eat. And I said, okay, well... What do you mean by that? Do you mean that you're having stomach pain? Are you nauseous? You know, can mm-hmm. you tell me a little bit more about that. And he said, I just, I just don't want to eat. I look at the food and I think I should eat the food and I don't eat the food. Yeah. And I said, okay, well, what kind of treatment options has your doctor given you? Have you discussed going to see GI or getting on an appetite stimulant or something? And he said, no, no, I don't know. I don't know that it's my body. I just don't know what's wrong. Mm-hmm. We kind of talked for a little while more. And I said, well, Seymour, can I ask you something? And he said, yeah, you can ask me anything. That's why I called you. <laughs> he said, okay, well, do you, do you want to live? And he said, and it took a moment. And he said, oh, well, that's, that's a good question. And I said, okay, well, are you, are you going to answer it? And he said, yeah, the answer is very much yes and very much no. That sums him up. Yeah. Mr. Paradox. It just blew me away that those two things could be so true. That's one of his, the biggest gifts I think he gave me psychologically was the ability to understand that that you can arrive at two contradicting truths and know the answer. Yes. I mean, in psych- psychology is so fluid, you can't pin a thing down. Like, <laughs> he would always give me shit for, because I was overweight at the time, about like, you know, it doesn't matter that you're overweight. He was, he was a Hollywood person. You know, he always he dated all the Hollywood starlets, apparently. Yeah, he did. Uh, knew Burt Lancaster, I guess. I think he knew Marilyn Monroe, too. No. I'm pretty sure. What? Yes, he told me all these crazy stories, Benny, about all these people who he had known, who I obviously knew they were because they're like icons. Yes. Oh, well, I, okay, I'll let that ride. I I don't know what to say to that. He never told me that. I'm sure it's true. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and then the lead singer of, I think it was Led Zeppelin, something like that. Wow. Yeah. Okay. What was I, what story was I telling? Oh, I'm so sorry. I was distracted by the image of Seymour unhooking Marilyn Monroe's bras. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. With one hand. Um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. And he'd bring up, he would bring up some, I think it was um, Hitchcock, I think. He was one of those guys who was really, really quite overweight. And he dated all these starlets, but I'm like, I'm not, I'm a famous movie director anymore. But he was always trying to get me to like, understand that, Hey, it's not really about how you look. And then he would lay into me for being overweight and say, Hey, you know, you gotta, you gotta get dressed. You look like a fucking slob. And both he actually are, say that to you. 1000%. He said wow. that to me. And it's basically like, both are true. It is true. Looks do not matter. And that personality and soul and heart is everything. It's everything. It is also true that if you don't look good, you're an asshole. Like, it's like, <laughs> you know, get in shape. Come on, put yourself together. And I, and I guess if I had to, if I had to bring them together, I would say that I think there's a certain, there's a certain healthy personality that seeks to keep themselves in good shape. And I'm not talking about the, you know, whole plus size body positive bullshit thing. You know, I'm talking just about just being, you know, in, in reasonably good shape. Do you think that's bullshit? Um, when somebody is like a hundred pounds overweight? Yeah, it's bullshit. 
Okay. For sure. Because of health, you mean? Yeah. I don't have any problem with somebody being quote unquote chunkier or whatever or thick. I mean, that's, that's natural and normal. That is how human beings are supposed to fucking look. But when you have trouble like getting out of your car, I used to be that guy. I know. It's not a lot of fucking fun. Also, <laughs> it really denies the idea that men in particular don't have control over what they find to be physically attractive. Why did you say men in particular? Because men are visual. Hmm. I think more visual than women. What do you think? You have opinions. Oh, I always have an opinion. Please, let me hear it. I think women are conditioned by society to be more malleable in what we find attractive and to look for someone who's like a good breadwinner, for example, and then to perhaps ignore other things like somebody having a beer cut. But if you strip all of that away and all things being equal, you know, say a guy makes, two guys make $50,000 a year and you're looking at both of them and one is, you know, 50 pounds overweight and mm -hmm. one looks like real nice. Right. You're going to be attracted to the one who's healthy looking. Sure. I guess I would argue that the delta between like, if a man is looking at a woman who would say, oh, she would make a good mother, she's, or, or whatever, whatever metric that men are using to, to judge that is not based on looks, whatever that happens to be, personality, whatever it is. The importance of her physical appearance, I think is far more extreme for men. And I say this with all the love in the world. I do not believe that women understand this insanity of men. And I'm not, and I don't think it's good. I think that women have the better perspective. That's I'm saying, really interesting. I'm saying that this is an aspect of men's craziness. Well, it's real. I mean, if I could be a man for a day, God, I would love it so much. Do you know what Seymour? Okay, go ahead. No, tell me. <laughs> Why would you love it so much first? Just to understand, because I do think we're driven by different things. Yeah. And we're driven in different ways. But to your argument, Seymour said he talked to a woman once. He said to her, what would you do if you could be a man for a day? And she said, I'd fuck everything I could find. Because if she would be liberated, she wouldn't have the stigma, right? Yes. So maybe you're right. Maybe I'm full of shit. No, I don't know. I mean, but she would do it because she was liberated, not necessarily because she was driven. Not well, that's was his point. She was liberated and she was driven. She wanted to fuck lots of things, but she didn't feel like she could. I want to act like an aggressive asshole sometimes, and I feel like I can't. Okay, fair enough. Did he ever tell you his diagnosis story? Mm -mm. So you like to diagnose, right? Sure. You're a nurse practitioner. You can you can prescribe anything. Almost anything. Can you prescribe me a bunch of Xanax, please? <laughs> Sorry, Benny. Please? No, you should have uh, luck. I, I, why? I'd why like to keep my license. I'm kind of attached to it. And besides, why do you need Xanax? Because um, I, I figured it was just, I don't know, just talking here. Listen, listen. So diagnosis. So um, when Seymour was trying to get into the, what's called the Jung Institute in San Francisco, which is basically this hoity-toity confluence of therapists who are, follow Carl Jung and think they're awesome. And my dad was part of that. Was he? Yeah, he was a Jung, he was a Jungian analyst. I didn't know that. That's how I found Seymour. It was one of the only things my father did, did for me besides really pay for everything, which is a lot. Thank you, dad. Um, was send me to Seymour. I thought your dad was a psychiatrist. Was he, he was. both? Yeah, he was a psychiatrist. Wow. A lot of the Jungian analysts were psychiatrists back then. I didn't know that. A lot of them were MDs, yeah. So it was back when doctors did talk therapy. Yeah. Seymour was, you know, Seymour was grandfathered in. He just got a degree in psychology and he's so old. It was like before there were dentists, you know, like you just declared yourself a dentist. Like I'm a psychologist. Boom, boom. Yeah. He got grandfathered in by the organization because he was wow. so ancient. Yeah. Maybe he was the grandfather of the organization. <laughs> yeah, well, I think he, he, I think he did have a master's degree. Well, just 
aside from the diagnosis story, this is sort of an origin story about him, how smart he was. He was talking to some school official. He was interviewing the guy to see whether or not he wanted to go to school there. And the guy said, our master's program is so is so intense that it's every bit as good as a PhD. And Seymour said to him, so you're telling me that you're going to make me do all that work and cheat me out of a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's how smart he was. Yeah. You know? Yeah, diagnosis. So so he, he was being interviewed by the young people and they said, well, what do you think about diagnosis? But the use of the utility of diagnosis is as well. I don't have much use for a diagnosis, but I find it does come in handy when I get into arguments with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Buddy. Poor, poor wife. Oh, yeah. She sounded like she was really something. Jessica Radin. Yeah. He told me that he had been married to her for a couple of years. They went to a cocktail party or something. And this man who knew him professionally approached him and said, she was never your patient, was she? And Seymour said, no, but I wouldn't have given a shit if she was. Look at her. <laughs> <laughs> that happens a lot. Someone started a rumor that my mom was my dad's patient. I feel like that shit flew around a lot back then. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's scandalous. People love it, a good scandal. It's really scandalous. Um, and now that I know more about being a therapist, I understand why it's illegal. Yeah. It is illegal, right? It's a felony, I believe. Wow. I get it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, power dynamic, right? I mean, you know how it is. I mean, you're a nurse practitioner. You see the power you have over people in your profession. Do when I? you save someone's life, yeah. You don't think that's power? No, not in the same way. That's such a physical thing. It's not psychological, which I think is infinitely more powerful. That's interesting. And dangerous. Can you answer my questions about the couch? What about, oh, so, okay, so for those of you listening at home or in your car, or wherever the fuck you are. So I work out of my home office in the Western edition of San Francisco, and I am interviewing Molly on a couch. And this is where I see my patients. And she has some questions, some inquiries about this couch. It's long. It's black looking. It's The couch is gray. It's, okay. It's gray or brown or whatever. It's some sort of sickly dark color. It's about 12, 15 feet long. It's leather. It's leather. It's nice. Infinitely comfortable. It does a great job of absorbing the popcorn kernels that I leave on it so no one ever sees them. Do you hang out on this couch? There's a TV right here, Molly. I know, but it's just so odd to me. So this is where you see patients. Yeah. But you also then chill out on the couch. I do. Okay. I sage. You do, you don't. I totally I have sage in the other room. <laughs> Should we say that for this after this conversation? Probably we should. Yeah. So this couch is very long. It's like a. It's so long. Seymour could have taken a nap on it. He could have. But I guess my question is, when somebody comes in for therapy, mm -hmm. you, I presume, sit in that. This is my my father's chair. Shut up. No. Yeah. This is his my father's chair. Was it his chair for hanging out at home, or his chair that he used in his office? Office. Wow. Like twenty, thirty years. Yeah. Why did you decide to use that chair? Because it's well, that's magic, isn't it? Does it feel magic? Not at all. Okay. But <laughs> so this is a, this is a thing. Here's a Seymour story. So I once um I know I'm not an idiot, but when I do therapy, I feel like there's an extra gear that turns. I don't know what it is. I don't. I think it's the patient. Like I wrote recently once in my journal, like don't ever mistake your patient's success for your own success. So there's something that the patient adds to the situation that makes your brain work better. But still, it feels like I'm in a different space and I do things with people and I say things and I think of things that I don't know how I thought of. It's like, I'm, it doesn't feel like I'm me. And so I asked Seymour once, I'm like, Seymour, how is it that I can't really function socially in the world? <laughs> I can't meet a woman to save my life. I'm just a mess with all that. But when it comes to being a therapist, I'm on point. What did he say? He said, it's because you have your father's license. 
Whoa. Yeah. That has so many meanings, and I just let it hang there in the air. <laughs> you didn't ask him to clarify? There's no need. <sighs> That's deep. Yeah. You know, my father was a psychiatrist, but also licensed to his permission, his, his spiritual power, his, all the things that I never inherited from my dad that now maybe I have inherited. I don't know. But here I am in a goddamn chair with his license. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah, it's a deep story. Hey, so quick interruption. This is my bid for some Patreon members. I can't produce these all the time. I would like to. They don't pay my rent, so <laughs> you know, gotta work. So if you all want to hear more of these on a more regular basis, please go to my Patreon. The link is in the notes. The membership is five bucks a month. I believe you can also make a single donation if you want. That's fine too. Whatever it is, I would greatly appreciate it. All right, back to the show. So you sit in your dad's chair in the corner, yeah, right? And when you have a new client, do you meet them at the door? I usually meet them at the corner of the alley. Okay. I, I live in an alley, ladies and gentlemen, and it's a little confusing and weird and sketchy. And so I tell people, hey, I don't work out of a regular office. I live work out of my home. So we have like bananas and milk and cookies if you need them. And so it's, you know, it's nice here. Keeps me honest because I, I keep everything clean. A uh, nice short commute, but to work. But <laughs> yeah, I meet them out in the corner and I walk them up. When they're new. Yeah, when they're new. And then you walk them in here. Yeah. And you say, take a seat. I do. And they choose which couch cushion they sit on. They do. Does so anyone ever choose the one way over there, super far away from your chair? Yeah, like a lot of them do. Do they? Yeah. Does that say anything about who they are? No. I, I think that shit's overblown. Like I, some people sit in the middle. Occasionally they'll sit where you're sitting kind of closer to me. This is the only place I would have ever chosen to sit. Well, that's just because I'm so magnificent. Oh, is that why? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I mean, I, I guess, yeah, they, they, they sit in different, or, or couples. It's interesting when I bring families in to see who sits where, but I think a lot of that crap's overblown. I don't. Do you do family therapy? Yeah. I so, love it. It's my, that's my greatest superpower as a therapist. Really? Yeah. Family that's a therapy. gift. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think most therapists don't enjoy family therapy. At least that's what I've heard. I think they're afraid difficult. of it. They're afraid of couples. They're afraid of family therapy. They're afraid of all that stuff. It's like a volcano. It is. Couples are hard. When I'm sometimes I'm in the room, I feel like I'm in there with my parents, you know, and that, that can be really difficult. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah, I much prefer families, but I mean, I, I do couples work. People need it. Do so. you ever just want to shake one half of the couple? Um, I mean, did Seymour tell you about how he kicked the guy? No. So he had a couple in. You know how Seymour's Seymour really tall. You know how he would he put his legs out in the room and they'd cover like half the room? Yes. <laughs> because they were so long. And the guy, I guess, was, she was, the, the wife was trying to express something and the guy was kind of doing an eye roll. No, it was, the guy was being really stoic. And so the, the Seymour kind of reached forward with his foot and Seymour kicked him in the shin. <laughs> 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 like, get him going. I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. yeah. Only him. Yeah, only him. Yeah, it's funny though. I think he affected people in the same interesting way. Like I brought the guy that I was dating to see him, not my husband, but yeah. this guy I was dating a long time ago who was salt of the earth. I remember like, him. East Coast city cop. Dad was a cop. Granddad was a cop. Just very traditional black and white kind of thinker. And he was awed by Seymour. And for years after, we're still friends. He's a wonderful guy. He just ended up not being my guy. Occasionally he will say to me, like, hey, do you remember when we went out into the middle of that field and we saw that old dude? <laughs> that was something. <laughs> yeah. And I had another friend who said that it, somehow a friend of hers or an ex-boyfriend of hers was out wandering in Petaluma and ended up on Seymour's porch. Stop. 
Yeah, and he came out and just talked to him for like an hour and a half on his porch. No he was Christ. having a hard time. I have no idea how that story happened, but I said it was like he was being visited by Gandalf. Yes. He was also hardcore. So Seymour would also like, like if someone cut in front of him in line, get in their face. He was at a restaurant in, I think, Marin somewhere. And these people cut in front of him and, and they were there, these young, tough dudes. The One of them looked like he was probably a boxer. And they started cussing at him. And the guy's like, because Seymour's like, you know, this is my fucking seat. And the guy says, I'm going to kick your ass. And Seymour looked at him very calmly and said, and what do you suppose I'm going to be doing while you're kicking my ass? <laughs> that, the prospect of him saying that is terrifying. Yeah, it is. And they left. And he you was know, in his 90s. His, right? ni- his, uh, his fingers, you know, they kind of looked like, they're else. so gnarled. Do you know why they were gnarled? Do you know? Do you know? Bar fights. And do you know when? I don't I can't Do imagine. you know when he got into, not Tell bar me. fights, street fights. Oh my God. Do you know when? What decade? What era? Can't even do math. When did people fight a lot in American history? The 20s? They were happy in the 20s. What followed oh, the, the, the Great the Fucking Depression? Motherfuckers' fingers were all fucked up from getting into fistfights in the Great Fucking Depression. Did he ever tell you about when he was little and he was having tons of problems at school and they couldn't get him to focus and uh-huh. he, he was failing out and his parents were so worried about him? And I don't know if it was his mother or his father, but they brought some kind of psychologist in to kind of do an evaluation. And the psychologist asked Seymour, who I think was maybe seven or eight at the time, um, what do you want to do? with your life and you know kids of that age usually like oh i want to be a fireman or a policeman or right. you know something very concrete and seymour said i i want to be somewhere where i have a room and the room looks out over a field and in the field there is a tractor and in that room people come to me and i help them and they were like well this kid is fucking crazy yeah so he tells me the story and he kind of pointed out the window and he's like look and there's a course of tractor sitting there <laughs> <laughs> so here i am but i think he told me that story because i couldn't i was so stuck in my life mm-hmm. you know stuck in the east coast and stuck in my enmeshed family and yeah. just stuck in my pattern i couldn't imagine anything different and he wanted me to so desperately he wanted me to imagine a different kind of life and so he used to say to me every time we talked have you been imagining and i was like wow this guy is so fucking weird you know but he's like i really want you to think when you close your eyes and you see your life what do you see and i always said palm trees i really was obsessed with palm trees and i just want to live somewhere that there are palm trees and it's sunny all the time which is and, why you live in sacramento right well you have palm trees fucker yeah, go on. um cost of living so I wanted to be somewhere it was warm and somewhere where I was in love and somewhere that there were palm trees. Mm-hmm. And all three of those things are now true in my life. Okay. Never would have happened if it wasn't for him. And I don't think it would have happened if it wasn't for all the fucking imagining either. What else did he help you with? Everything. He was just there in like such a, just the way that I needed someone to be there. I can't explain it to you other than that. He gave me all of this unconditional love, but he was so gruff that he wasn't someone who I would have expected to give me unconditional love. He was so gentle with me and he was always kind. He wasn't necessarily always nice. But he was always kind. And I think that the thing of being able to realize that two things can simultaneously be very, very true. Mm -hmm. I use that concept every single day in my life. Takes away a lot of anxiety, doesn't it? Yes, it gives me so much peace. Well, he taught me uh, that when you run into a paradox, usually you know you're onto something. You're onto the truth, you know? Yeah. 
Did he ever tell you the fish tank story? No, I don't think so. This is how he kind of taught me to build my practice and relate to people. But he told this story about how he was, his family ran a um, upholstery, upholstery business. I should get this chair done, by the way. Yeah, you should. You know what's weird? Like the, the stool bit, there's like these little worn out patches on the sides. You see that? Yeah. And they're like, what is that? Is Was he like, was my dad like, did he have his legs like this all the time? Well, maybe that's just how he moved the chair back and forth is exactly what you just did. Oh, I see. And then you can tell over here, he put his hand there a lot. That's kind of weird. Anyway, so there was a guy a few floors up who would never buy anything from them. He'd always like talk to them and then they would never, he would never end up buying anything. And he's like, well, I'm going to go talk to me. Like you're wasting your time. So he goes up there with his little samples of upholsteries and knocks on the door. Guys, like, guys, come in, come in, come in, come in. Mm. And uh, Seymour notices there's a, a fish tank on this guy's wall. And then he sees another one and another one. So he asks him about the fish and the guy's like, oh yeah, this is from tropical blah, 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 blah. And they sent, end up spending an hour talking about the fish. And then Seymour goes to leave and the guy goes, wait, wait, I got to buy something from you. Right. And, and this moral story of is like, is not to go towards the thing, but yeah. to kind of relate and connect. He also talked a lot about horses. Like if you want a horse to do something, you can't pull the horse directly. You've got to kind of do this weird. Do, do you, do you remember all this horse, horse stuff? Well, I'm also a horse person. Right. So okay. So he kind of spoke the same language. But, but towards the end of his life, he was really into this particular type of horse training where you, you this guy, Klaus, have you heard of him? he will walk up to a horse and he'll like touch it and he'll get the horse to rear just by like barely touching the horse. And it's like all this sort of really passive, you get the horse to do your bidding without pushing it. Right. And that was his whole thing in the world was not to, not to come at, at a thing in a direct way. I think that is also why I loved him so much. He never made me talk about the reason that I was fucked up, uh, right? Like this terrible thing that happened. He never ever did that to me. Right. He would say, sit down. And then he would say, tell me your dreams. And he would want to talk about literally my dreams, which are, you know, it's such a crazy thing to think about, like dream about the weirdest fucking thing. Like, oh, I was walking down the street and there was an avocado on my shoulder, you know, and he'd be able to, to do so much meaning from that. And just the way that he came at me was the way you would come at a horse that was spooked. You, know? you never talked about your trauma with him? Not explicitly, no. I didn't need to. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Do you think psychology gets that wrong? Oh, I suppose it depends on the person, doesn't it? I suppose I don't know. Because like a lot of times Seymour and I just spent time talking about philosophy and the world and stuff. And somehow through all that, I became healthier. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we talked a little bit about, you know, being a fat kid and having a family that didn't quite work and an absentee father and uh, things not going so good for me socially. But we would just jam on like politics or whatever. Like we would talk endlessly about things. And you didn't realize you were being therapized, right? No. And he, well, he always said that anybody who says they know what therapy is, is an asshole. <laughs> Classic. He also said, beware of those who know. What a fucking legend. I'm just sticking as many of these things in here as I can. This is my little ode to Seymour. Yeah. I, w I would sit on his couch and we would talk shit about horses and life in New York and California. He would tell me random stories and I couldn't see at the time what he was doing. He was drawing connections, you know? Did he ever tell you how Burt Lancaster made him a really, like a Long Island iced tea that knocked him no. on his ass? Yeah. Only the dude. You know, he ran an airplane company. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> of course he did. Of course he did, right? And he, he used to raise falcons and train them and shit. No. Yeah. He told me this story about how he, he trained a falcon and went to Europe and went and delivered this falcon to this incredibly wealthy falconer out in like fucking 
planes of never mind anyway so he delivered to this guy this really rich dude probably never worked a day in his life like that's the stuff seymour did when he was young so random it, but i could totally it see makes it. sense it makes so much sense he told me this story about how it was uh, raining once uh, it was flooding and we used to live in los angeles and his wife was a couple miles away and there was a stay in order because it was flooding and he's like well fuck that so he got on his horse and rode through like four or five foot deep water went and got his wife threw her up on the back of his fucking horse and rode home what a stud (laughs) (laughs) the thing is you know it was true oh yeah he did kind of do weird things with the truth sometimes though did you ever catch him in that no yeah well he would sometimes like he's told me a few stories that actually came from movies like he would tell a story as though it were true he told me a story about a woman who goes to see a psychiatrist and she says my husband is a psychologist and he's really really crazy and he refuses to go see a therapist he refuses to get help and the guy says, well what do you want me to do and he says she says i want you to go see him as a patient and i will pay you you'll pay him so i'll pay you double to go see him and you're gonna help him it was he was talking about just being canny and he was really interested in when, when when you'd make moves that were sort of invisible and amazing but i'm pretty sure that was from a film somewhere <laughs> did you ever call him out on it i have like he wouldn't remember stuff sometimes yeah like i had a whole relationship with a woman that he didn't remember you're kidding no was it an unimportant relationship no you met her i think he didn't remember her no he didn't remember her at all not at all didn't she see him as a client? Yeah, which was a little weird. It was very old school. Like he saw us as a couple and saw her as a client and a little screwy. Mm, but well, that I mean, he was really old school and a little unethical. Do you think he was unethical? I mean, by today's standards, absolutely. Do you think that today's standards are ethical? I think it's really, really important if you see a couple to not just see whomever. I don't think that's a good idea at all. I've seen in real time why that fucks things up, you know. Hmm. I mean, it fucks things up with us a little bit. I mean, we were already kind of fucked up, but yeah, that was a, oh my god. I remember. You remember? Yes. What do you remember? I remember thinking that was never going to work, but I didn't want to say anything to you about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I thought, oh well, that's good that Benny has someone, and yeah. she seemed nice and lovely and young. I don't know. She just seemed. Well, she had an IQ of like five million, hmm. and she was really into like tarot cards and stuff just we were at it was not a good situation (laughs) (laughs) it was not a good situation but yeah i'd I'd say he was you know he would flirt with his female patients a lot and i get that he's old school but that's like i think it's dangerous i would agree with you i never saw that side of him yeah like i wouldn't say that he was flirty with me at all he was more like your great grandpa yeah I, I get that i guess that's what i'm kind of referring to he was he was like in that sort of like oh you're really beautiful but i could never really tell because i would bring in a girlfriend or two and he was just very forward about oh you're so beautiful and this and that and i could never tell is this a grandfatherly thing or are you putting on a grandfatherly air so that you can do that uh, and i don't know yeah it's i don't know either per- except per- to say that at the time my spidey senses were like- on extra high alert and i never felt creeped out by him okay at all and he did hug me but it was a grandpa hug yeah you would know in a second you you in particular would yeah Yeah. so what i'm saying is that as a man i don't know because i don't have those senses i don't i don't know what the fuck i'm looking at you know it's all math to me 
Yeah, you know? that's um, And I do know that towards the end of his life, he really started to lose his mind. Like he, he mentioned something about being manic. What do you mean? Well, he called me up once. We were talking on the phone and he said, I'm going to sue Stanford. You know how he's always telling like, he, didn't he tell you to like sue the airline or something? I don't know. He was always telling people to sue people. And he, he himself was involved in a huge lawsuit against some Jewish charity in LA over some family thing that went on, went up all the way up through the fucking uh, California state Supreme Court. You're kidding. No, drained his fucking estate, cost him everything. Thing. Yeah, that's another story. But anyway, so he told me he's like, I'm gonna sue Stanford because his I think his daughter's husband didn't get the mental health care treatment he needed from Stanford for some condition because Stanford didn't do didn't do dream analysis. I'm like, what? What are you talking about, Seymour? Like, there they go. I'm gonna sue them into doing the Jungian thing and all archetypes. And I was like, dude, what are you talking about? The really crazy one. He would. Re- I think he was really off the deep end. And I think the problem was is that I don't know towards the end how present he was. I had sent this woman, this Russian woman to him, who was this sort of model type. And he called me up and said, you know, thanks for a referral. And he, was, he got really weird about how he wanted her to go to Russia and talk to Vladimir Putin and help him start a movie company. What? And that he would be the director and nobody else could direct, but it would have to be Seymour. And Seymour would be in charge of it. And it was like this weird sort of Hollywood fantasy thing. Like, I think that some of his ego was wrapped up in the whole Hollywood business from the golden age and all that shit. And he just sounded completely crazy. And then I would call him the next day and he was, he either wouldn't remember the conversation or he would just laugh it off. Like, oh yeah. And and then he was, and then he was fine. Yeah. I think he had dementia certainly, especially towards the end. Yeah. It was pretty bad. But he still managed to be so poignant so much of the time. Yeah. I miss him. Yeah. Me too. Do you ever dream about him? No, but I do feel like he's with me a lot of the time. Yeah, me too. And every time I see a house fly, obviously. You know, <laughs> I think, oh, there you are, buddy. I argue with him constantly. Do you? All the time. Does he win? Yeah, usually. <laughs> That's not surprising. <laughs> he told me that this, he had this lawyer as a patient who said, and he would always say this, my patient told me I would hate to face you in court, Seymour Hayden. But wouldn't you? I he just know. had this way of like flipping everything right on its head. Yeah, he would. He was. He told me this like about this guy that would brag about how he could take a class, any class, and get an A in it. And Simon was like, "That guy was a pig. He'd eat anything." You know, like that's a flip. It's a flip, right? Yes. Yeah. Mental kung fu. He do. He told this one story from World War II. Actually, he was in a World War II hospital. I think with scarlet fever or something like that. Like he narrowly missed like some huge battle, like one of those ones where he most certainly would have died because he had scarlet fever, but he was in bed and there was this white corn fed type next to him. And he was talking about uh, the, the N word is very prominent in this story. So I won't use it, but he, the, the guy was saying like, yeah, there's good, there's good ones and there's bad ones when I'm saying ones, that's the word. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like the good ones, you know, we have them over for dinner. They're real nice. And then the, when they would go out in public, they would do things like they would like slash them, slash their ass, slash their butts with razor blades oh and pins God. and stuff. Horrible shit. Like horrible shit. Seymour let him spend a couple days asking him, tell me about the good ones again. Tell me about the bad ones again. Tell me about, and the guy would go on and on. Finally, at the end of a couple of days, Seymour said to him, you know, I'm curious. I had a question. What, um, the, the good ones that you know, what, what, how, what would it, how, what would it feel like if you found out that, uh, those are one of the ones whose butts you slashed and one of those things. And the guy like went completely white. It never occurred to him. Jeez. And he strung him along for a couple of days with that. <sighs> Ultimate mental kung fu. Yeah. The other mental kung fu story. You got me going. 
I love it. There was a guy who was really into Jack London. This was back in the day before, you know, there was Jack, people who wrote short stories were heroes, you know. This guy was like in his early 20s. They were all in their early 20s. And the guy would dress like Jack London. He would talk like Jack London. He read all of his books and stuff. And he asked Seymour once, he said, so do you, do you think I do a good job of being uh, Jack London? And Seymour said, yeah, you, you do, except, except for one, there's just one thing you've left out. And the guy's like, what's that? And Seymour says, I, I don't know. And he kind of tortured the guy with it for a while. Like, it's just one thing. The guy says, what is it? And Seymour says, well, I don't think Jack London ever wanted to be somebody else. Oh. <laughs> burn. <laughs> Varsity level burn. Yeah. God. Yeah, that was him, man. There's nobody like him. No. Did they bury him, Benny, or where? I guess they, I'm sure they cremated him. Yeah. So he was the greatest of all time and he was the worst of all time. He was, I, I, I tell people, I don't think he died. He left, you know, he, he exited, Yeah. you know, someone like that doesn't die. No. You fucker. Yeah. So, eternal fucker. Yeah. How long did you know him? I think we started working together when I was fucking 15. Wow. 16. You were a baby. Was he always in that place in Petaluma? No. I used to see him in Mo Valley. He had an office? Mm-hmm. That's very weird. I can't imagine Seymour having an office. Well, it's because you didn't know him when he was still in his 60s. <laughs> <laughs> was he much different? Uh, yeah, he wasn't as deeply archetypal, I think, in the beginning. Or maybe it was because of me. He was more, there was more theory, I think. He would have these like cool sounding ideas. But as he got older, he got more trenchant and direct and kind of, he wouldn't explain something. He would say things like, you have your father's license, just let it sit there. And then if you asked him what the fuck he meant, he would just stare at you. Yeah. You know, like, fuck off. You know, you don't get to know. <laughs> Did you like him? Yeah, I liked him. But I mean, I mean when you were 15. Um, I didn't like anybody. I don't think I knew what it meant to like somebody. I know that sounds a little weird, um, but I didn't have any social skills, no friends, no allies. I was so out of it. I didn't, I didn't have any way to conceive of my position and my relationship towards others. When do you think you figured that out? Maybe when I was 30. You didn't figure out how to like someone until you were 30. Yeah, I'd say so. Who was the first person you liked? Well, I mean, I liked people, but I didn't step into understanding. I don't explain it. I mean, I knew I liked my ex-girlfriends or my girlfriend at the time, my couple girlfriends before that, but I didn't, I don't know. I think <laughs> the first person that I liked, that I really stepped into knowing that I liked was my friend Lissa, actually. Um, it's possible that I may have done some therapeutic stuff with uh, MDMA at one point. And I remember looking at Lissa and going, oh, I like you. That was new. That was like, oh. And now when I see people I like, I feel this warmth, but I don't, I didn't before then. I just knew that. I, yeah, it's weird. It's really weird. Do you think that the range of emotions is growing? Yeah, well, it's the, the range of emotions is there. It's just that I don't, I guess the question is better to put as the, my experience of my range of emotion. Because I mean, I write, I write stuff. Like you, you've. I know. So I never talk about my writing ever. Would you care to speak on it? Oh, I love it so much. <laughs> oh, Benny. So you sent me Departures. What's that? It is, I think, your first novel. Yeah. God, it was so good. So you sent that to me. I think I had known you maybe, maybe a year, uh -huh. maybe a little under a year. So I didn't know you that well. And again, concrete block said with love but sure. that was my experience of no you. problem but i felt like and i know that wasn't exactly you know autobiographical but i felt like through reading it that that is how i came to know you does that make sense sure because that person the mm -hmm. main character in that book had this like you huge 
range of emotions. It was all experienced in his head. Like yeah. he wasn't acting on any of them. He was kind of just this passive passenger in his life. Yeah. Almost just getting like kind of batted around by <laughs> circumstance and the wind. I remember when Seymour said, this is the first time I've ever seen in a lick of emotion on your face. And that was like 20 years into our therapy. Wow. I think it must've been 38 when he said that. That's fucked up. Yeah. yeah. Why do you suppose you're like that? I don't know. I think part of it is honestly abuse. When you're, when you're a fat kid with no social skills, you learn to clam up pretty good. Yeah, that's fair. It's a survival mechanism. You know, don't let them see it. Just if you don't experience your feelings, you don't have to experience your feelings. You know, if you're in pain and you don't know that you're in pain, well, are you really in pain? <laughs> um, I don't I don't know where that comes from. It's something I'm still working on, being around people and like reminding myself to be present. Because my whole thing is I always try to impress people. It's my way of relating to them. And I'm like, don't do that. Just try to actually connect. Like I had a supervisor once. She was brilliant. She said, would you rather be admired or well-liked? And it was hard for me to answer that question. And I realized, oh, fuck, this should not be difficult for me to answer. Yeah. This is a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a therapist? Yeah. It took me a while to find her. Um, she's like a Seymour. I chose a female therapist intentionally because I had a male therapist for nearly 30 years. So, But yeah, she's um, she's powerful. You should go see her. Yeah, I think I will. Um, she's particularly cool because she, she was from my milieu. So she actually knew my dad and knew my family and knew... Yeah, she knew about Seymour because they're all all these Jungians and they all run in the same circles. Yeah. I am so excited. I don't think she knew Seymour Seymour, but she knew of him. She didn't know him. That's enough for me. Yeah, she's amazing. She wants, <laughs> she's so funny. She loves, she's really into cars. And she was talking to me about how she got to Monterey in an hour and 15 minutes from San Francisco. And like, how the fuck did you do that? And she said, I was late to an appointment and it was my first BMW. <laughs> <laughs> Girl after my own heart. Yeah, she's totally cool. Sweet, you know how to pick them, Benny. Yeah, I guess. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about you? What is there to say? I don't know. Nothing. Nothing really. Nah, I'm good. How are your dogs? Oh, they're so cute. How, what, what kind of dogs are they? I have a Great Dane. Great Dane. Who has one brain cell. <laughs> but the biggest heart. Oh, God, he's just the sweetest baby. 150 pound baby. Oh. And then I have a Newfoundland. Yeah. Who is supposed to be like a very sweet nanny dog and is a total asshole. But I love him. I met him. Um, yeah, Atlas. Yeah. I met him. And now I have an old English sheepdog puppy. Wow. His name is Wally. Is he going to get big? No, not by my standards. Well, I was walking to my therapy appointment and there was a dude with an Irish wolfhound oh they're so beautiful that fucking thing was 210 pounds yeah they're gorgeous oh my god i wanted one i looked for a puppy everywhere there aren't any breeders and then my husband was like can we please be reasonable which the poor man spends his life asking me that so I yeah well he's you know put what? up with you he, i know he's amazing he's Candidate a saint for sainthood yeah i gotta call the vatican yeah for sure and you have a horse still no i sold him so why did you sell your horse well, I was going to have the ankle surgery, you know, and he didn't quite feel like the right fit. So the horse didn't feel like a right fit. No. Why not? Well, the horse I had prior to was like the horse of my dreams and he died. And oh. Well, I had to put him down after a pasture accident. Oh. So I bought the last horse kind of very quickly. And, you know, and so you've kind of gotten horses, animals in lieu of children. Is that correct? Yeah. I'd say that that's accurate. It's nice. I don't have to pay for college. <laughs> I can put them in a box. 
Yeah. A friend of mine has a, a Great Dane a pit bull mix. Oh. He says, he, her name's June, and he's like, Ben, he sent me pictures of her. He's like, look, Ben, she's not having it. It's not a single thought in her whole head. <laughs> and if she is having a thought, it's, I love you, Dad. Great. I love you so much. Great. <sighs> I hear that. How's jiu-jitsu going? Uh, it's good. I just did a, I did a sleep study. Did I send you that picture? Yeah. Yeah, that was intense. Yeah, I did a little that was wires. a real one. Yeah. Um, so we'll see what that turns up. I I bring up sleep because it's been affecting my jujitsu, but I bring up but I, I've stopped looking at videos on the internet and that seemed to really make a huge difference. Because I realized I think the algorithm selects the things that make you the most anxious. Right? Do you think that's true? Well, think about it. The things that you watch are the, the the things or the things that I watch are the things that make you get your heart rate go up, they make you riled up and wound up, right? So you're going to look at those things and the algorithm's going to go, oh, he's looking at these things. So we'll send him more unless you're someone who just likes cat videos. But I'm not one, I'm not, I'm the, you know, I'm looking at like, you know, Donald Trump's latest bullshit or Marjorie Taylor Greene doing something stupid. Like that's the stuff I'm looking at and I got to stop. Yeah. That's not healthy for you. No. Mine is almost exclusively horses, uh-huh. dogs, and people falling down because I love it. <laughs> You should watch my videos. I've got all these videos on Instagram. I watched one the other day, your yeah. most recent one. On Envy? Yes. How was it? I thought it was good. Wasn't it amazing? God, Benny, the ego. Like, is there enough room in here? I'm just trying to advertise here. Yeah, it was really good. <laughs> the production quality was pretty decent, too. It's just, yeah, it's just my phone. Yeah? Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. We live in the future. We, we do. What happened to the past? I don't know. It went away. Remember when we were kids and there wasn't any of this? And I wonder if things are better or worse as a result. Well, we save a lot more time because we don't have to, like, you don't have to, like, you don't get lost because you've got a GPS. But getting lost is fun. Is it? Sometimes. I was watching Heat last night with uh, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, and they're all using payphones. It's a crime drama, and they're all Mm. using payphones, and it's like, oh, look at that, using a payphone. It's so sweet. So pure. Remember the phone book? I do. That then went on that was on that impossible wire thing that would dangle and you'd pick it up and then it would fall and hit and slam and you'd curse and you have to pick it up again. Yes. Do they still exist, phone books? I don't think so. Yeah, you know it was weird too when I was driving into San Francisco today. Almost every billboard was advertising something to do with AI. Ugh, yeah. What do you think about that? Um, well, I don't think it's gonna replace therapists anytime soon. It's going to replace all the low, the entry level jobs, like entry level copywriting or entry level therapy, even or entry level, you know, design and all that stuff. And I think in five years, probably going to replace a lot of programmers. It's scary. It's going to be like, well, you know what happened to Detroit, right? Yeah. So when they automated the um, the uh, car industry, all those people lost their jobs, and Detroit became a wasteland. And so you get into this thing, like, is it really a good idea to innovate to the point where people lose? jobs maybe we shouldn't have all these things let's get on let's maybe we should be more like the amish you know and like i don't know if we have to take it that far but because i don't want to be churning any butter benny and i really enjoy my botox and well okay but you like you fix people like you like sew them up yeah but ai could supplant the need for some clinicians i think maybe but then you there's no substitute for human compassion. I mean, I, I imagine at some point in the future, you'll be able to walk in and they'll be able to scan you and just, you'll get a printout of everything that's wrong with you. And this is the treatment. And then you go into another room and they apply the treatment and you're going to be it. There's going to be no doctors. There'll be nurses because they'll be the human touch piece. But I think all the high end surgeons and all that shit will disappear. 
But that's probably 100 years from now. What will become of humanity? Well, I have a theory that um, there just won't be very many people. And we'll just live a really long time, like hundreds of years. That's what I think. That sounds kind of terrible. I, I don't like the fact that I want to see the future. I want to see what happens. Do you? Yeah. But do you want to live in a body that is old? Well, that's the thing, right? So you can talk about that because you're a medical person. Like we're extending life, but we're not extending quality of life. Right. right? And that's a nightmare. Yeah. Oh, so sad. So sad. Well, it's it's nearing two o'clock. You should probably get going. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, that was fun. All hail the dude. All hail the dude. All right. Take care. Okay. Love you, Benny. Bye. Ben, this is Seymour. Probably an unwelcome call. Sorry if it is, but uh, I still marvel at your willingness to not change your uh, your answering uh, message that uh, says, uh, feel free to leave a message of any length. It's going to be Ben's way. That is the big question you have been asking. Ben's, ben does not reverse himself on anything. The ego is just vile. How the message that prompted me to call this is that the book, the message from the horse, is just made to give you opportunities to the 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 book the book is like a living thing and uh, it gives you so many chances so many opportunities to not read the book but to do what you call reading a book you're lucky that you're so bright because it does provide a, a uh, substance and I'm glad I know you
and I'm going to play you until you do it, you asshole. And I'm an asshole. But I, I was just overwhelmed uh, when we had that hour. Please call me as soon as you can if you don't figure it out for yourself within 15 minutes of waking up. Um, uh, this is good that it, it does not necessary that you um, uh, speak with me, but I'm calling to remind you that today you have a date and it's a date of enough importance that you should do everything until the date happens or doesn't happen in a spiritual way. And there are many things in the, in the American Indian tradition that say, I walk in a spiritual way today. I eat in a spiritual way. I wash my face in a spiritual way. You have to be very spiritual today. Not the, and, and it's a shame that you didn't change the thing uh, on the on the message that this is not an infinite uh, a message of any length should not be in your calling because it's so fucking arrogant and arrogant is not spiritual and what you did is you compensated and you change your story and you take license to take your story let today be a day where everything you do is spiritual good or bad because that's not the outcome is not important but today is a spiritual day and live it that way um here is a uh uh, you, you know, you don't have to call me back. I'll just tell you where I got the synchronous information. Uh, as I picked up the book, I was reading uh, on uh, um, page uh, 99 where he's talking with the shaman Augustine Ramos. And uh, it uh, goes uh, uh, I don't know if you'll see the parallel, but it's, it's, it's quicker if you do it yourself than if I read it to you and comment on it. But uh, it has to do with the thing that uh, the world has been um, uh, enthralled with ever since it read uh, Plato back 2,500 years ago. And uh, it, it goes, uh, it's very synchronous. Uh, the crystal-filled rocks relate to the far-reaching idea that Atlantis, Plato believed in Atlantis, that it was an extraterrestrial um, explosion. It exists that it inhabited and its inhabitants came from outer space, that it demise, its demise resulted 
from an explosion of a giant energy crystal that rarer Yumara elders have secret knowledge about the power of uh, pieces of giant crystals that originally came from the explosion. That is all I can say, because he doesn't, he's obliged for secrecy. Although I was fascinated by the mystical nature of the Rara Yumari, as Artaud, R-A-R-T-A-U-D, I still had my own mysterious to, mysteries to explore. I asked Augustine about the hole that nearly took my life in the Rio Yuriki in 1983. Okay, and here is 100, which uh, I wanted to know if it, if it was used for Shabbos, Shaman initiative rites as Lucy. Um, ben, this is Seymour. I have some things to straighten out with you, and I'd like to get it done one way or the other as quickly as possible. Um, I since you have this a message of any length, I'd like to take advantage of that and give you a quote from Captain Ahab in um, Edmund's Moby Dick treatise. Talk not of the bitterness of middle age and afterlife. A boy can feel all that and much more when upon his young soul the mildew has fallen and the fruit which others is only blasted after ripeness with him is nipped in the first and bud, and never again can such blights be made good. They strike in too deep and leave such a scar that the air of paradise might not erase it. And it is a hard and cruel thing thus in early youth to taste beforehand the pangs which could be severed for the stout times of men could no i'm sorry uh, for the pangs which should be reserved for the stouter times of manhood when the gristle has become bone and we stand up and fight it out live as a thing tried before and foreseen. For there we are veterans, used to the sages and battles, and not the green recruits recoiling at the first shock of the encounter. We can reconstruct Melville's experience of his father from the scattered passages of his writings. Then it goes on from there. There is also a thing in the New Yorker. 
Ben's voice on the voicemail, with uh, which says, leave a message of any length, which is uh, kind of ambitious. Um, Armin, uh, my life is uh, not going to endure, I don't think, very much more. And I thought that maybe I could uh, have a conversation with you. Uh, this is about a 70 or 80 percent possibility that it happens today or the next few days, but it's pretty clear. My, it's a very funny thing because my mind is as clear as it's ever been, and yet, and yet, I'm I I can't take care of myself, and uh, I. Uh, sort of um, don't want to say goodbye prematurely, neither do I want to say not say goodbye if I have a chance. So if you get a chance to call me, please do. Might even be a chance to squeeze out a, a thing um, uh, uh, at the um, at that uh, seafood peddler or whatever he is in uh, Sausalito.